listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Mark Dietz, an assistant professor of African and World History and the director of the Center for American Studies and Research at the American University in Cairo. His research and teaching focuses on 19th and 20th century West African social and cultural history, especially in the Senegambian region. His first book, A Country of Deviance, Mapping the Casamas in Senegal, is published in 2023 with Ohio University Press. Dr. Dietz has also published his work in the Journal of African History, History in Africa, a Journal of Method, and the Africa as a Country blog among others. Dr. Dietz serves as a book review editor for the Journal of West African History. He moved to Cairo in 2017 after obtaining his PhD in African History at Cornell University. He embarked on this academic career after 20 years as a helicopter pilot and a military diplomat in the U.S. Marine Corps, serving as a military attaché to the West African countries of Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Cap Verde, and Mauritania. In his final military assignment, Dr. Dietz returned to his undergraduate alma mater, the U.S. Naval Academy, to teach history and to serve as the varsity wrestling officer representative. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're here with Dr. Mark Dietz. Um, he's joining us from Cairo, Egypt. Um, it's really nice to, oh, the sun is out for you guys. It's getting, you know, <laughs> the sun goes down here a whole lot earlier. Um, so before we get started and dive into your book, I wanted to start by asking you about the origins of this project, a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project, how you came to it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, and philosophical, drew you to the questions in A Country of Defiance? Well, thank you, Fatima. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Um, I, uh, I'm really excited about this. this is kind of the first uh, interview that I've done about the book. And so uh, it's, like I said, it's just a real honor uh, to be with you. And I've listened to some of the other uh, programs that you've done. I listened especially to my colleague um, from uh, Cor- Cornell, uh, Marty Crabtree's uh, earlier interview uh, with John. And, and uh, yeah, that was great. Um, so uh, really excited to be on this uh, podcast, uh, especially. And um, yeah, to answer your question about what drew me uh, to the project, um, it, it really emerged from my uh, diplomatic experience of uh, working at the U.S. Embassy in uh, Dakar, Senegal from 2005 to 2007. Uh, this was in an earlier career when uh, I was in the Marines and I was uh, a military attache working at the embassy in Dakar. And I showed up for work there in January, 2005, which was um, the month after 
uh, the December 2004 ceasefire had been signed in the Casamance conflict. Um, and this was supposed to be um, more than a ceasefire. It was actually uh, a peace agreement. Um, there had been several ceasefires kind of throughout the 90s and the 2000s, <clears throat> um, but, but no real peace accord. And this was supposed to be um, a peace accord, but it wasn't really fully settled yet at that time. And so there were still a number of meetings and, and negotiations um, between the Senegalese government and uh, the rebel group, the MFDC. And um, in my capacity as the military attache, I was often uh, accompanying the U.S. ambassador to some of these meetings. Um, and especially at that time, the U.S. embassy was was kind of uh, trusted as um, an interlocutor, sort of, um, you know, a neutral uh, interlocutor uh, between the, the Senegalese government and the MFDC, the Movement of Democratic Forces in the Casamals. And so, yeah, it was part of my job to start going to these meetings um, in this diplomatic, diplomatic setting with uh, others in the international community and from the Senegalese government and occasionally uh, meeting um, with uh, representatives of the MFDC. And uh, yeah, I always just found it interesting. So first of all, like, you know, I was a helicopter pilot in the Marines. And, and uh, one thing you don't like if you're a helicopter pilot is getting lost. Well, I don't think anybody likes getting lost. <laughs> so anyway, I, I think that's partly where my, my fascination with maps uh, developed from. Um, but uh, I found it odd that in talking about this separatist movement in all of these meetings, nobody ever pulled out a map to kind of, and, you know, I just kind of, chalked it up to, to like me being the new guy, kind of the new guy in town and everybody else knew exactly what we were talking about <clears throat> and everybody else knew exactly what the, the, the specific claims of the MFDC were. And, uh, but eventually I figured out that I don't think that was really the case. And I, and I don't think that, uh, that, that anybody pulled out this, this map, um, partly because the, the borders uh, of the Casamals and, and like what is in question in terms of the Casamals independence movement are fairly clear. Um, they're basically based on the international borders formed with the Gambia and, and Guinea-Bissau um, to the south, and then, of course, the Atlantic Ocean to the west. Um, but, uh, you know, it seemed like there was always uh, a bit of confusion about what the eastern border of, of the Casamals was. And so anyway, I just, I thought that was, was kind of interesting, but, um, and then, uh, I had a meeting with a retired government minister, um, who in the Senegalese government, who said to me that if I wanted to understand what was going on in the Casamals, I had to know something about the Bois Sacré. And I was like, the uh, Basaké, you know, like, what is that? He's like, the sacred forest. And, and again, I was, I, was, uh, I was interested. I was intrigued. Uh, I didn't know much about it, about the sacred forest. Um, but I had, uh, you know, a number of other people tell me, oh, yeah, like the sacred forest, like that's a really big thing to the Jola. It's a really big thing to the Cosmos, uh, to, to people from the Cosmos. And so, um, the, yeah, that's, that's, that's the center of, of uh, 
Casamance separatism. And so uh, as, as I began to look at that and, and to critique that idea, right? Like you can't really start to critique something until you know something about it. And um, I've never been initiated into the sacred forest. I'm not like some, yeah. some Casamance scholars who um, have actually been to the sacred forest. They're much more familiar um, with uh, the, these, these cultures, these aspects of the culture. Uh, than I am, but but I was interested in the sacred forest uh, in as much as it was used or contributed to this idea of a of a of a separatist identity that it was connected to the separatist movement. So, um, uh, you know, I that was really kind of the focus, and and as I began to learn more about that and began to learn more about the, the history, culture, and politics of the Casamals and uh, its relations to uh, Senegal and, and the history of the separatist movement uh, in general, um, you know, I just kept learning more and more and discovering more and more. Um, in some ways, wishing that I'd known it before, right? Like, because I'm in this government position, you kind of assume that uh, you, you would hope that people who, uh, who are working in these government positions would have a lot of knowledge about the the task at hand or, 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 or the, the, the situation that they're dealing with. And um, for me, it was a learning process, right? So um, it was very uh, humbling um, continuously learning more and more and kind of thinking like, okay, now I think I understand this conflict. And then I would pull back another layer of the onion and discover like another aspect that I hadn't mm -hmm. thought of or that, that didn't occur to me. And uh, I, I would learn more. And, um, and, and in some ways, like the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the other thing about, about higher education for me too is is um, the the more I learn, I I'm not really becoming a, a know it all. I think I'm even though I, I know more, but I'm I'm becoming more aware of what I don't know. Um, and so, uh, especially as somebody um, you know coming from my background and coming from uh, a, a Western viewpoint. And especially like a Western government at that time, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was uh, working in the U.S. government at that time. Um, I'm. Uh, I became aware of the lenses through which I was viewing things, and how my lens um, was different, and how I needed to think about that lens in order to be able to understand what was going on, uh, and in order to be able to do my job. And I think the development of those various lenses, although I can't fully get rid of, of my particular lens, um, they developed uh, in me anyway, a certain amount of humility um, and a certain amount of empathy for other people, understanding that um, these people are, 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 are walking in shoes that I haven't walked in. So I need to have empathy for that. On the other hand, uh, also being aware of uh, our common humanity and, and, and mm -hmm. being seeing how, oh, you know what? The way these Casamal say are thinking about this or the way these Senegalese military officers are thinking about this, not so different from the way I would think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, um, you know, kind of the tension, I guess, between the differences 
and the commonalities and the things that make us human, uh, uh, you know, from like a humanities uh, kind of standpoint. And I do appreciate that it, it definitely shines through the book. You know, let's say if, you know, no one knew the background, <laughs> it's um, there's a certain you give uh, dignity and grace to the Kazamase people, even within Senegal, that's <laughs> Senegalese people within themselves. <laughs> Don't even, you know, you can turn on any Senegalese TV show and you can find people debating and it's, you know, well, it, this, you know, back and forth of, you know, what the real Senegalese citizen is and the, that definition of citizenship. But I really, really appreciated how you you mapped the different groups, right? So speaking of the Senegalese state, and for those who don't know, just to backtrack a little, the Casamas is a region within Senegal. It's within the lower, it's in the lower, um, lower Senegalese region. Um, and I guess that's, that's that North versus South. And right. you point out in the book, Senegal is known within West Africa. Oh, it's a peaceful, <laughs> it's a peaceful state. Never went through a And stable. War. Mm-hmm. Until this yeah. year, <laughs> this year kind of kind of <laughs> took that. They were like, I think we're tired of that. I don't know if they wanted a new. Yeah, facts, I, I don't know. <laughs> they so, they wanted something different for themselves, but um, it kind of um sheds a little light onto that. Um, oh, Senegalese is always in, like that stable state, and goes against that narrative of saying, well, actually, no, there are people within you know, Senegal, who are facing a conflict. So which I, there's the elites, you know, so you map out the Senegalese elites, the Casamas elites, and then the ordinary Casamas and how they define citizenship for themselves. And I think bringing it down to that local level, it's very important, um, you know, as we're seeing everywhere in the world. And that local level, you, you know, you mix that, those commonalities between, um, you know what's happening what happened in kenya um you know we can even bring that to rwanda like there's these commonalities these pinpoints that you can draw together and um i do appreciate that you the other thing that we'll definitely get into is the cultures that you you know the jola culture the history you know that you also Mm -hmm. bring forth um and also the role of women and you know mm-hmm. the voices of the Jola people do come through this. How was um, how was that experience of you know interviewing the Jola people, speaking to them, asking their opinion? Um, how were you able to, I guess you know get that get those messages across through your book? Because you did do a good job in ensuring that the ordinary Kazamase voice is heard. Um, direct quotations, how they felt, because we usually only hear from the elites, right? It's always the leaders. Um, Their voices shine through. They're the ones who are defining what citizenship is and et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think I have to uh, thank uh, some mentors here. I I can't really take credit for this uh, by myself. Um, Judy Byfield uh, was my advisor at Cornell and she and and Sandra Green um, and uh, the the others uh, on my committee, including uh, Ray Crabe and Ziad Fahmi. I actually took the kind of the phrase ordinary chasm all say from uh, Ziad Fahmi's uh, book uh, on the called the ordinary Egyptians 
Um, and yeah, I was, um, my, my, uh, attention was always being called to like, what is the viewpoint of women, uh, by Judy, um, by, by Judith Byfield, um, you know, who, who works on women and, and gender history. And, um, you know, I, I had read some things that, that, that convinced me that, um, especially, you know, there's this article by, um, Anne McClintock from 1993, um, she was writing about uh, basically the great trek in South Africa and kind of the development of Afrikaner nationalism and um, talking about the ways in which um, nationalism is always gendered and it's usually gendered uh, as male and the ways in which that that has worked out. And so, uh, you know, nationalism, because I was wanting to write a history of, of uh, the separatist uh, conflict in the Casamals. Um, which I think of, you know, separatism as kind of a specific uh, type of nationalism. Um, you know, Judy was always calling my attention to what about the women? What about the women? How was gender operating? Um, uh, you know, you, you, you can't just, just talk about this um, as like some sort of a neutral uh, idea about the nation and how na how the nation came about uh and uh so uh, again that that viewpoint um tr trying to see uh, look i can't escape i can't escape my lens right um none of us can but um to to have judy continuously drawing my attention to uh the role of women um in not not only in this content conflict but also the role of women in working for peace and the role of women in defining the nation or the ways in which they had been sidelined or marginalized in the process of uh, nation forming and kind of nationalization. Um, I was, you know, often being uh, uh, asked and um, kind of driven to, to look at those, to look at it from, from that standpoint. And so when I went to uh, Senegal. I went back to Senegal for a couple of uh, research trips. Um, you know, when I was there as the military attaché, I didn't spend a lot of time talking to women in villages. Okay, uh, I was a part of the official community, um, and so, but but that was not a bad experience either, right? To kind mm -hmm. of have uh, the viewpoint of being in the official international community in Dakar at the mm -hmm. time. And and being privy to those conversations and and to the the, the diplomatic conversations the, the 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 conversations with uh, the Senegalese state, um, I mean I, I think that's that's kind of um, that's a viewpoint too that's a lens right uh, through which to view this and so what I found so interesting um, in my research was you know I did. Um, I did quite a bit of research in the Senegalese uh, archives and also in the Gambian archives uh, in Banjul. But um, eventually I, I tried to get out uh, and, and go talk to people. And um, originally, you know, I was doing um, mostly oral interviews in uh, Dakar and in um, Ziegenshore. And then eventually I, I tried to push out from there to, to try to get out to some, some of the villages, um, in the Casamals. Um, so I, you know, I made it into the Usui area a little bit and talked to people there. Um, 
especially when I was um, kind of focused on trying to learn more about uh, Alin Situ Ejata, who came from Cabrus there in the southwest corner of the country. Um, and then also, uh, you know, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in Fonyi uh, in that area and in various villages in Xinjiang and Sutu and, and places like that. And um, I always found it uh, interesting that almost every time I showed up and, you know, of course, they, they know I'm a Western researcher. They, it's not <laughs> the first time they, they've seen somebody like me show up, uh, wants to talk, wants to ask them questions about the Kazimals conflict and about uh, Kazimals history and stuff. Um, but uh, so quite often it was like, oh, here, okay, here, here's another one. Um, so go talk to that guy over there. And that guy over there was always the guy in the village. It was almost yeah. always a man who had the most formal education in, in the village. So that's part of what kind of started pointing me to the school as one mm -hmm. of the spaces where this, uh, this national, uh, you know, the idea of a nation is kind of taking place. But then the other thing was um, whenever I would like see a woman kind of off on, on the side uh, of the village or, or like a group of women, and I would ask about going to talk to them, um, they would tell me, well, no, they, you know, they don't have any education. They don't really know. And in mm. a few cases where I kind of broke through that and I was able to, to talk to the women, even the women would tell me that sometimes. Mm. They would say, um, oh, that's politics. I don't really, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't really care about that. Um, but, um, and I, I mentioned this in the book, but when I stayed around, you know, when I, when I stuck around and just kind of, you know, uh, talked with people and hung out with people and um, I was fortunate enough to be invited into some homes and things like that. Um, I would hear women talking about things that were not political in terms of like the high P politics and in, in, mm. in terms of like the party politics of Senegal. But I would certainly hear women say things that were very political in terms of like local arrays of power, um, you know, and, and who has uh, the ability to kind of uh, narrate history and who has the ability to kind of um, state what the, the, the definition of uh, various sorts of identity is, whether it's a, a Jola or whether it's a Catholic or whether it's Christian or whether it's um, the, the local religion or whatever the case may be. Um, I would hear these, these statements in these conversations where, you know, I didn't necessarily like jump in and say, oh, that was political, but... <laughs> But in my mind, I was kind of thinking that, like, well, you, you, you said that you don't really have much political thoughts and that you don't really care about this stuff. But, you know, in, in, in these discussions about either kind of local level politics or, or taking pride in the, the, their, their, the, the intelligent prodigy the, uh, from, from their family or from the village who had been sent on to a higher level of school um, with expectations that they would uh, come back and and do something uh, great for the uh, uh, for the family or the village, like that's that's political, right? Like mm -hmm. th that's power, um, and that's that's also um, change over time in many ways. So 
um, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how, uh, I, I ended up talking. And of course, um, with any oral history, I mean, you're, you're aware, right, of, of your own identity, the, the, the identities, the, the agendas, the, the limitations, um, and especially when um, you're uh, talking about translation, because, um, you know, I could speak French with them, and I had one interview in the Gambia in English, um, but otherwise, most of them were in, in Jola, and so I had a, an interpreter with me. And so, again, there are all kinds of limitations and all kinds of, um, you know, considerations to think about um, with that in terms of the message that, that you're, you're getting then as a researcher. But um, that, those interviews, and I, you know, it was about 40 interviews total, which isn't that many mm -hmm. really for an Africanist historian. I mean, uh, I know, um, you know, I, I know historians like uh, I, I have a colleague at the Journal of West African History in uh, Dubuese um, and Ba. I think he had like over 400 something mm. interviews in, in Nigeria. And, you know, I, I've got 40. But those 40 <laughs> interviews were, were, were so important to me mm -hmm. in, in being able to question uh, a little bit the, the kind of um, – received wisdom of of the written documents that in other words I, I i don't think that i would be able to to make this claim to trying to represent you know the the ordinary chasm i'll say if all i did was read all of the works of uh, father jonathan <laughs> yeah i think that would uh, that wouldn't do it justice and while you're speaking you reminded me one of um, I love that you put this in there. One of my favorite stories you put in there was when um, I believe it was one of the ladies who owned the schools. It was the lycée and she yeah. and a couple of other, it was a women's group um, in the Kazamazu right. region. And they asked, they went to the villages to ask the women their opinion about how to stop the conflict. And, um, because they were illiterate, I guess, in you know the 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 education sense, they didn't have formal schooling. They asked them to draw a picture of like mm -hmm. you know to describe. And you said one of the um, women she drew a turtle, and um, she they were she asked her what did the turtle mean, and she said, well, because before all this conflict, there were turtles everywhere, and turtle was a sign of peace to them. And I just thought that was so beautiful. It was a way of these different ways of knowing, um, you know, to not discount things just because it's they can't talk about it in, you know, political jargon and, you know, use, I don't know, all these frameworks and stuff. But they right. can fully tell you what it is. <laughs> they can tell you, like, listen, I may not know <laughs> what you're talking about in terms of all these ideas, and but I can tell you what, you know the the piece that was here and just right. that symbol of the turtle was i i really stuck i stayed with that passage for some time because it it means a lot and i think i'm still processing it um mm -hmm. but it was just such a it was a peaceful i don't know the format was peaceful the messaging was peaceful and it just it just shows you that you know Yes, these these women in the village have something to say, and they have an opinion, and um, we should seek them out. You shed light on one of the priestess um, priestesses who was 
um, I guess, a mar- she was considered a martyr for the Kazamas region. Um, but before we go further with the, <laughs> you know, with women's <laughs> role in, um, you know, the community, I did want to ask you because it did, um, this is something that goes, of course, you know, of your book. The contested spaces in the Kazamas region operate on this dialectic between yes. space and place. And I think it's really important to talk about because it really guides um, the book. It's It also frames, you know, the chapter names. There, so you start off with the river, the forest, the school, the stadium. So can you talk a little bit about the space and place? Um, and you're very careful too, which I've noticed. You've made it, you've emphasized it throughout the book. You're like, I'm not giving. <laughs> you're like, this space has already existed before me. <laughs> um, but <Yeah>. it's <laughs> the people who have made it a place. And there's a there's a difference between those two. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you. Um the the distinction uh between space and place is is clearly very important um in, in the book. And, um, I, you know, I use the term dialectic and I think I, I was thinking of it as a dialectic originally, um, as a question of familiarity, you know, as, as, um, thinking of space as something that you're not really that familiar with just a three dimensional, um, you know, sort of, uh, characterization of, of, uh, physical domain. Um, that is often thought of as objective and um, sort of neutral um, with little value attached. And then this idea that as you become more familiar with that space, eventually it's transformed into place, right? So, um, you know, uh, maybe for you at the University of Maryland, uh, there, there was a certain uh, element of familiarization over time so that eventually you knew your way around um, you felt comfortable in, in certain places, or maybe you had favorite, uh, a favorite place to hang out or study or whatever, um, you know, kind of as kind of the development of place. But mm-hmm. as I began to talk to more people, and again, this is why I think the, the oral history interviews that I had were so important is because they, they demonstrated to me the ways in which that was not a linear process. What I just described to you is kind of a linear process, mm-hmm. saying that it goes directly from space to place, and then with the idea that eventually there's no space left and it's all like full, fully place that mm-hmm. you understand it, you connect with it, you know it, uh, you know it by heart. Um, but first of all, I think that um, that that doesn't work because I think a lot of us think that we know a place. And then we learn something new about it and we're like, oh, dang, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, I just learned something new about about, about this place or, or where I'm from or where I'm living or whatever the case may be. Um, and then uh, the other thing is just that other people see this differently. Again, going back to the lenses that we all have and that other people see it differently differently. Uh, uh, over over time and at different times, right? So um, that's why, like, when I'm talking about uh, the the importance of the 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 feeling of Casamalse solidarity um, for Casaspor, all those supporters from Casaspor wearing their green jerseys when they go to a, a match 
in the, the Senegalese uh, international uh, soccer stadium, um, oh. you know, that, that they're, 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 they're all there that they don't all, they're not all thinking the same thing. Oh. And, and so, um, yeah, I tried to allow for as much diversity and specificity uh, as I could. To some extent, this is, this is logical, but it was also um, not really me being so logical or so smart. It was uh, me listening to these oral history interviews to what people mm -hmm. were telling me uh, that they felt when they went to a soccer match and they're supporting Kazaspor and they're wearing their, their mm -hmm. green jersey and they're, they're, they're sitting there in the Kazaspor section. Um, they're not all thinking the same thing in the mm -hmm. same way. Um, and, and so uh, to take that <clears throat> and then kind of transfer it to the, the separatist meetings that were uh, beginning to occur, um, basically kind of under the umbrella of Kazaspor in the, the late 70s and early 80s, mm. um, you, you know, uh, I, I'm sure, and again, I, 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 I heard this from, from different people, that they didn't all think the same way and they weren't all thinking, they weren't all supporting separatism in the same way as mm. some of the, the kind of diehard leaders were. So um, even in that, uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm pushing against these sort of uh, monolithic uh, interpretations um, quite a bit throughout the book, mm. um, which you know, can be a problem eventually uh, because then eventually you, you've kind of diffused everything and, and you can't categorize anything and you can't mm -hmm. make any kind of argument because it's also <laughs> complex, right? Um, but I, I hope that what, what I tried to do is kind of uh, strike a balance um, mm -hmm. in, all of those, in all of those things and in, in showing that not everybody in the Casamals thought of this the same way, thought of mm. the, the spaces and the places in the same way. They didn't identify with them all in the same way. Um, and, and yet they were important and they, they were a means that, I mean, my central argument is that each one of those, I call them space places uh, again, because they're kind of operating on this realm between space and place mm -hmm. that each one um, th there was an aspect to which Casamal say used the references to that place to say, we're different mm -hmm. and here's how we're different. And when we're in a rice field or when, when we're in the forest, we know that we're different from people from Northern Senegal because of this. Um, and so I actually, that's when I actually began to think of the spaces and places themselves as the means of imagining the nation, right. To, to borrow, uh, Benedict Anderson's, uh, way of, of framing this, that, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily print capitalism. Um, it wasn't necessarily the different uh, cultural forms, whether it's, it's music, like thinking of Marissa Mormon. Um, or uh, other sort of cultural forms that are non-print means of imagining the nation, it was actually being in that space uh, mm -hmm. in and of itself. Um, and, and, and again, as I say in the book, like I'm not denying the importance of the rituals and the activities and the cultural forms that people were using in those spaces. 
Um, but, uh, but I am pointing to the spaces themselves as places of this sort of national imagining. Um, and again, so that kind of, that kind of goes back to that original conversation with that former Senegalese uh, official who talked to me about the sacred forest in the first place that kind of stoked my interest. Mm. And the fact that it comes up in conversation so naturally to him as he's speaking to you, as if you, you grew up with this in, you know, middle school, and you know, you have yeah. to be like, wait, hold on. Can you, can you just, uh, because like those words alone is a whole, that's a whole volume. That's like 10 years of education. It's like, you know, it means, um, it means a lot. And I think, Something that you, you mean the bois sacré, the, the bois sacré. It's you know, just say, oh yeah, you know, the bois sacré, and you just move on. And for you, you're like, wait, those those two words are a lot. Like, can we <laughs> unpack that? And um, you know, between all the scholars you put together, who are like the Casabasse scholars, including this book, it's there's something that it brings out in this multi ethnicity. Um, this call for multi-ethnicity, even the cover of the book, right? With Balagade, um, how do you say that in English? A wrestler? I don't know. That's yeah. he's, a, a, he's a he's, wrestler, he's a wrestler. Would I call it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I guess we can call it a wrestler, you know, within the, the arena of, I have no idea how to translate those words actually into English. <laughs> like um, the, the lamb, I don't know how to translate Yeah, lamb. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's wrestling, um, wrestling yeah. arena, and how even they they are they are representatives of you know coming from these local regions, but then I don't want to say assimilating, but merging into the Senegalese state and creating this new sort of um, representation of Senegal citizenship, which is very important because for the longest time, it's always been this islamo wolofization which you talk about, right? So anytime right. we're discussing Senegal, there's uh, this automatic assumption of, oh, everyone's Wolof, <laughs> and then there's everyone mm. else. So there's this othering that yeah. happens within, you know, um, within the Senegal, within that region or within the country, let's say, and that's yeah. it's important to know that. Well, actually, no, <laughs> that actually comes. It stems from, and I'm going to go to your first chapter, the river, right? So going yeah. back to getting lost and the mapping, the how colonial cartographers even found cause the Cosmos region in the first place was through the river. Um, but these borders that have been created since the 15th century and then 1884 still play a crucial role in how um, not just Senegalese, but how Africans define themselves, right? There's, do you go against the borders? <laughs> do you go with the borders? Um, but yeah. I think it's, it's very important that whatever happened with, you know, with the colonial cartographers, those, th those things still have an effect today. Um, and to talk about the Casamas River, which is how first the Portuguese came and then the French and British, um, you point out the relationship between space, labor, and ethnicity. And I think that's very important. I do love this one figure you have in the book where it's they literally divided the, the region according to ethnicity and then labor, right? So if right. you are Fula, this is going to be your specific labor. If you were a Banyuk, this was your um, going to be your specific task. So 
going back to like how these spaces were seen um, as a place by different viewers, the imperial gaze, I think that's just very important. And then how there's that discursive mapping and then the counter mapping you talk about, which um, are really applicable to to a lot of different um, areas. So yeah, if you can talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I think after uh, reading um, so much at, at, at Cornell about, and this was a lot of the work that I did with Ray Crabe there, um, about colonial mapping and colonial cartography and these these mapping um, processes, um, and uh, reading uh, "Seeing Like a State" uh, by you know James Scott and um, and uh, a lot of other a lot more of James Scott's work. Um, I uh, was I, yeah I was already kind of attuned to pay attention to these things, and then I stumbled across these maps and in, in the archives in Dakar. Um, of these maps that had been hand-drawn by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Albert Sajou um, in the 1940s. He was a colonial official, um, and I think he was actually in Ziegenschur at the time, and uh, he was mapping uh, ethnicity and also basically colonial production. And so uh, he had like, these two separate maps, and he had uh, um, pie charts uh, for uh, ethnicity, like the kind of like what ethnic groups were in these different parts uh, of the Senegal or, you know, or if it's, if it was all Jola, then, you know, maybe the, the, the different, um, I mean, it wasn't really all Jola, but there were also definitely, you know, different uh, sort of um, subsets of, of the Jola or uh, different factions of the Jola. Um, but then, of course, he's also mapping uh, Mandinka and Mancania, um, uh, Papel, and, and others like in, in that southern area. And then very specifically also mapping rice production. Um, you know, um, the, in addition to rice, like um, the other kinds of uh, crops and uh, other things that they were producing uh, in the, uh, in agriculture there. And, um, it looks like these, these two maps, like you could almost put them over the top of each other. And, um, with the expectation that, um, they're, you know, he's, he's coding, um, a particular ethnicity with a particular kind of colonial production. Right. And, and this is becomes a part of what makes uh, Alin Sito Ejata so famous, the, the, the rain priestess uh, in the 1940s during World War II, because she's rejecting this. Um, and she's um, trying to get uh, the, the Jola uh, in, around Sui to um, resist colonial rice requisition for uh, French troops mm. and also to resist military recruitment for the Tirailleurs Senegalais um, and uh, the, the colonial troops. And so this, uh, you know, th this, this, is, this is a big deal um, to the, the colonial regime. And um, it's, it's 
a way in which I just thought it was such a, a fascinating representation of that idea of seeing like a state, right? Um, and and very clearly, even though um, you know slavery has has been gone for a long time by by this point, it was just interesting how very very clearly um, he was directly tying agricultural production to ethnicity and to particular mm. ethnic groups that were supposed to be producing a certain amount or certain things for the colonial state. Um, and, you know, so one assumes that if he, if he's tracking this, this is, this is important information um, to the colonial state. And so um, this was a part of that. You're, you're right. It's a part of that first chapter on the river where I was also talking about colonial exploration and colonial mapping um, and, um, the ways in which, I mean, that, that's the start, right? That's the start of the, the creation of the Casamals, um, with, with the, the name that comes from, uh, the, the Portuguese, what the Portuguese explorers were, were hearing when they were, uh, showing up on the Casamals river. Um, they were hearing about this Mansa, which was, uh, Mandenka, right. For, uh, about the kind of the king or the ruler of the region, and then uh, putting that with the name of Casa, uh, which is that region uh, of of, uh, of the Casamals uh, west of Ziggenshore. And so, um, you know, it's it's kind of the beginning of of mapping that and 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 of the creation of the Casamals, um, even having the name Casamals, uh, and then kind of tracing the various sorts of mapping that goes along with that, which is why eventually. I, I came to that hand-drawn map by Lieutenant Colonel Saju, um, the, the French official, but just showing the ways in which uh, the, the Casamals came to exist as a thing in the world, as a geographical entity um, in, in the world um, through all of these uh, colonial uh, mapping and border-making processes, and then the ways in which that kind of waxes and wanes, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, even after in the, in the post-colonial period where the, the Senegalese, the post-colonial state actually removes the name of the Casamals from the map, mm -hmm. um, because, uh, they, they did this basically after the, you know, the March in 1982 in Zingenshore, and then eventually the attacks against the, the gendarmes in 1983. Um, then in 1984, we get a new map. And it's Casamals is no longer on the map, and now it's um, you know the the region of Ziegenshore, the region of Seju, the region of Kolda, um, and and so um, mapping and representations of of territory um, are seem to be very important um, in in all of that process, and um, tied to this this idea and the need for the state to kind of impose order to uh, impose stability. Um, you were talking about the, you know, kind of the pride of Senegal and being it, it's, it's political, it's historical political stability. Um, this kind of stability that supposedly like strong states with strong borders uh, brings about, right? Um, but uh, we don't often think, um, at least not in a colloquial sense, I mean, we do in, in uh, you know, historians of cartography and colonial mapping certainly think of this, but we think about the, the, the ways, the, the kinds of violence mm -hmm. that 
were done to people in order to bring about that map or mm. the kinds of violence that are done to people because of the map, mm. right? Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that with that with that opening chapter, uh, I was just just trying to to first of all tell the story of how the Casamons came to be, mm-hmm. but then also the ways in which maps and mapping are used both by the Senegalese state and also by the NFDC, um, and and the ways that uh, you know they they contest uh, that that kind of mapping. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I do have the other two favorite chapters. I think the rice chap, the rice fields chapter is one of my favorites because, um, you, you know, you really do spend that time to talk about women's role in rice cultivation and how that's, you know, synonymous with, it's not, they're just not just like, you know, cultivate like rice farming, but it's contributing rice builds community. I think those were your exact words. And I love that because rice is a staple in our diet. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, right. rice, rice really does build community. I mean, if, if anyone's having an argument and you put a plate of chebujin or just a plate of, <laughs> you know, rice in front of them, they, they will see eye yeah. to eye at least for 30 <laughs> minutes. You know, it's like a, yeah, and a I temporary get it. I get it. <laughs> It's it's just very interesting how rice works in Senegal. Like it's just such a, you know, like my mom would always joke like, oh, your brother loves rice so much he can't marry someone who doesn't know how to cook rice. Like it was just that deep. And I'm like, I don't know if that's you know he can make his own rice. <laughs> so it's um, like the importance of rice is just so. It's, I don't know, we cannot just be like, oh, it's just rice. And there's a lot of conversation in Senegal. I mean, you, you know, I think any any corner you go to, oh, we shouldn't be importing rice because Kazamas is right there. <laughs> if I did not know anything, I knew that, okay, rice is important for some reason, not just culturally or socially, but like economically. I think that's one of the things that... um everyone somehow can talk about like you know and you you mentioned that whether the difference between buying rice um you know from a sack like in a store and getting right. the rice from Kazamas, like what does that really mean it it's for, it actually builds citizenship <laughs> where you buy your rice and how you, you you know those are the things that like how how do you explain that to someone? I'll read this book, and um, so that that rice building community. But you spend that time to talk about how when colonial when colonialism came, how that affected women's role in community, and then when Islamization Islamization came, how that also affected and Madinke right because the Madinke came over and kind of I want to say took over the Jola, but you know. There was a change in ethnicity that the 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 ethnic the domination of the ethnicity kind of changed from Jola to Madinke a little bit, um, and from yeah. there from the rice fields, I kind of want to lead into the forest because it was mm-hmm. it was kind of like hand in hand, and with the forest, I learned a new concept of scientific forestry. I was like, well, the French never stopped, did they? <laughs> they just, I mean, they, so can you talk about this? Because I, I think I'm a little too passionate to talk about it, <laughs> but it's the, the scientific forestry that they found that, you know, that came up, they, they introduced in the 1920s 
and how this scientific forestry is actually still continued through the Senegalese state. Um, so mm-hmm. many of these colonial policies are actually not, not many of them have changed. Um, so right. if you can talk about that, because the rice fields is economically right between rice and peanuts, like where lab- where the efforts had to go. And then the forest was kind of the same, right? Who got to, who get to, who gets control of the forest um, and how and et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. So uh, maybe I can uh, talk about them backwards in a way. So maybe I could uh, start with the forest. Um, I, I have this part in that chapter where I talk about uh, kind of a, kind of a, a transition or a change over time from uh, the forêt classe to the forêt sacré, right? Um, from the, from the, the classified or state forest to the, uh, the sacred forest. Um, and this is not to say that there were, f- like, I, I wasn't pointing towards specific forests and saying that, oh, here's a forest that used to be a state forest, and then it became a sacred forest. What I was doing was uh, more in general uh, in, in talking about kind of the different ways that the state viewed the forest, which was um, basically in terms of space. Um, you know, one, one of the def- I, I talked about kind of a 3D representation of space earlier, um, but what I didn't talk about was the ways in which space is, is made kind of uniform and flat and like it's all the same right um which is kind of what state people like you know to kind of simplify things to to some extent and so uh yeah i was pointing more to the 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 kind of transition from viewing the the forest as a resource um and uh, viewing it as so essential to Jola identity and, and even Mandinka identity. And, and again, that's where I make the case that this was um, kind of a perfect um, religious symbol for all of the different ethnic groups and all of the different religions in the Casamals. Um, because, the, the, and, and this, this, this statement or this argument that I make uh, comes from uh, just finding it odd that there's a Catholic priest in charge of this separatist movement in a mm-hmm. uh, part of the country that, okay, even though it's, you know, it's the part of the country that, that has a, a sizable um, Catholic and Christian minority, um, still uh, the majority of people in the Casamals, in the lower Casamals, are in fact Muslim. They're, they're, they're not Christian. So, you know, I was always thinking like, how, why is it that a Catholic priest is, is leading this movement um, for people in the lower casemals who are 60% uh, Muslim? And um, eventually I started to think about the, the, the sacred forest and mm. the flexibility of that identity, because there is no such thing as the sacred forest. In other words, just like one monolithic idea of the sacred forest but rather many sacred forests and uh, with very local shrines and very local ideas of the sacred forest. And so each village has its sacred forest or their sacred forest. 
So there's no such thing as the sacred forest, which then makes that that uh, religious symbol uh, a very flexible form of identity to kind of attach people from different uh, ethnicities to the nation, right? So if that's the thing that that makes us Casamalse, um, then everybody has that. Even the Christians and 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 the Muslims, like most of them. Um, still have some aspect of this. Um, I'm not saying that they all do, but a lot of them kind of, you know, I, I, they, they have aspects of both religions in, in their faith or, or in their cos cosmology, uh, in how they view the world. And so um, it's, it's going from that kind of state-centered view where the... Mm -hmm. The, the French were upset with people in the Casamals because they were burning the forest at various times and, and not taking care of the forest, at least according, according to the French. And this becomes a part of the civilizing mission, right? That, that uh, the French are saying, well, you need us to come in and, and help you take care of the forest because even though you've lived here for over millennia, um, you don't really know how to take care of the forest. So um, we're going to bring in our scientific forestry, our state-directed forestry um, that will preserve the forest and, um, you know, in, in, um, implement these uh, conservation strategies mm -hmm. for ways to rebuild the forest uh, from, because of the ways in which it's been destroyed uh, over the last several years. Um, and so it's going from that idea, which is very uh, a very kind of state-centered idea of the forest, to the the sacred forest, which is very cultural and and it's multicultural because, mm -hmm. like I said, almost everybody in the Casamals, uh, regardless of their background, regardless of whether they're they're Christian or Muslim, they can mm -hmm. identify with the sacred forest uh, to some extent. Um, and so then uh, going back uh, to the rice field, um, again, uh, I really appreciate the, w the, the way that you talked about um, how I deal with kind of a different academic literature in every single chapter in, in some ways. I mean, there are some, obviously there are some things that uh, carry on throughout uh, tied to nationalism, tied to uh, ideas of space and place and mapping and things like that. But um, on the other hand, uh, you know, going back uh, to the, the rice field um, and, and thinking about the change over time, um, I tried to kind of highlight change over time in each chapter. And I think I do that, especially with the rice field and talking about these processes of uh, colonization, first of all, which is, you know, focused on resource extraction. Um, which is, you know, why those those maps by Lieutenant Colonel Saju were so fascinating to me, um, and then uh, the process of uh, of um, Mandinkization and the process of Islamization, and those last two kind of go together to some extent. Um, there are other scholars um, who've written about the process of Mandinkization, and that's not to say that the Mandinka completely absorbed uh, the Jola. Through marriage and 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 um, and other ways, but um, there there is nevertheless this scholarship and this history uh, about um, you know kind of almost like an absorption or a spread of 
of Mandinka culture um, mm -hmm. into to Jola communities. And then, of course, you have the history of those raiding marabous, right, in the late 19th century with uh, Fode Sila and Fode Kaba um, that are raiding all these Jola villages and stuff. Um, and so um, there's there's that aspect as well. But, but really, Mandinkization is much more about just the spread of these communities, the spread of the population, uh, intermarriage, um, and, and all these kinds of things. Um, it, I think it's more about that than it is necessarily about the violence um, of, of the raiding marabous. But that also, um, in general, usually mandakization came along with Islamization. Mm. So, um, and it's not to say that the raiding marabous are responsible for spreading Islam uh, in the Casamals. If anything, they probably stunted it, right? Mm. I mean, if anything, they probably limited it. But as we know um, from the, the history of most of, of West Africa, um, where Islam is spreading into the region, it's mostly coming in through trade and it's coming in through Islamic scholarship um, and, uh, and, and culture, right? It, it's it's not, um, not very often or not in many places is it coming about through like armed jihad you know, or jihad of the sword. I want to be careful because I'm thinking of uh, my colleague, uh, um, Sheikh Babu at Penn, you know, who talks about the, the jihad of the jihad of the nafs uh, mm -hmm. and fighting the greater jihad um, with the, the Muridiya. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that it's... I remember, yeah, that it also ties into Kenneth Harrow did extensive on, you know, scholarship on Islamic, um, Islam and just in the African context. And because even as you're talking about space and place and Christianity and or Islam, there's, it, it shows how place has an influence or influences that um, Africanization of Islam or Africanization Christianity. Yeah. Um, exactly. In those places. And I guess that it's that Africanity that connects, you know, um, the people together as opposed to mm -hmm. maybe how Christianity and, and Islam can be a little divisive sometimes. Right. <laughs> or not a little. If you look at history, it was quite a lot. But, you know, it's that Africanization at the end of Islam that um, or Africanization of Christianity that seems to link, um, you know, the yes. different these different ethnicities and allows for multi-ethnic ethnic and these polytheistic beliefs. Um, but it right. all comes together because of the place, you know? And right. cause I'm right. thinking, I'm like, okay, why do, let's say if it's a Senegalese in Belgium versus, you know, they're still going to be, let's say Muslim or Christian, but there's difference if it's a Senegalese in Casamas in the Bois Sacré there's the mm -hmm. place that's going to tie them together. Um, it won't be, it'll be regardless of your Christian or Muslim versus you right. know, being in Belgium. But, but I think, yeah, I really like this idea of place. Right. Yeah. That, you know, you, you, you've uh, made a very good argument. <laughs> you, you make, you make my <laughs> argument better than I do in a way um, that uh, in a way, the Bois Sacre, the sacred forest is that Africanization of of the cosmology or of the worldview um and so people can keep their christianity or their islam um 
because especially with Christianity, that's really viewed as a Western import, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if we, we look at the, like the Pan-African writings of uh, Edward Blyden, he talked about uh, Islam as kind of a better mm -hmm. religion for Africa uh, in some ways. Um, but, but nevertheless, um, really it's that, uh, it's that religion in the Bois Sacré that mm -hmm. really links all of this together. And like you said, that provides that, that, that common identifier that everybody, regardless of eth ethnicity, regardless of religion, that they can all identify with. And so that Africanization, like you were saying, is so important uh, to the, the separatist project, I think, and to, to nationalism um, in, in general, especially in the Casabals. Yeah, absolutely. So I know I can, you know, we can talk about the school and the stadium. Oh, there's so much, but <laughs> you know, readers <laughs> take what they want from from books, and um, I guess that's the part of anxiety of publishing a work. I have not gotten there, but I've been told. <laughs> um, so at the same time, you know, I guess you're also writing with an imagination of the reader. Um, mm -hmm. As I'm saying this, it makes me think. Um, you know, imagined communities because you pull from Benedict Anderson <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so this is interesting. But while you were writing the book, did you have a sort of imagined reader in mind? Um, to me, this was a great beach read, quite frankly. I loved it. I would read this. <laughs> I'm sure not a lot of people would, um, but I did. because it just, it just makes you, for example, when, you know, reading about the river, I just kept imagining being in front of, you know, the Kazamas River and the beauty and the riches um, that was described by everybody, whether it was, you mm -hmm. know, the Casamase or the French or the Portuguese, everyone was acknowledging the beauty and the rich that and the rich culture of flora and fauna that was in that mm -hmm. region. You know, when it was the school, oh the stadium, you know, I've been to a to a of course to a Lam Arena um and being that while you were talking about the stadium, I imagined myself being in that stadium and mm -hmm. hearing people yell. And then the new part is I started to think about how every single person had a different national imagining by being in that stadium, right? How everybody was bringing something in to that arena and contributing mm -hmm. to this vision of nationalism. And it's because I always went to the arena like, oh, we're all Wolof, right? But this book kind of humbled me. <laughs> it was like, actually, we're all not. <laughs> um, so it's it's that thing of, I don't know, place and uh, being there in those spaces or in these mm. places that mean yeah. um, a lot to the Kazamase. But mm. that was me as a reader. <laughs> but who did you have in mind while you were writing the book? Well, uh, it's a great question. I, I think that, um, you know, to, to some extent, uh, like my first impulse to answer that question is like, oh, I hope it'll help bring about peace or, or something like that. But, you know, I'm not that conceited. I'm not that arrogant to think <laughs> that uh, my book uh, could somehow solve the, the Casamals conflict, um, e even though... Um, you know, of course, I, I want to see peace in the Casamals. I want to see, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I want the best and I want, uh, um, 
um, prosperity and peace for, for all my friends there. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, again, humbling myself uh, a, a little more and, and, and realizing that uh, my book is probably not going to um, earn a, a Nobel Peace Prize or anything, but um, I would hope that the book would build empathy. And I, I used this word before. You, you can probably tell that it's kind of important to me. Um, I think it's one of the best things that we can do uh, in the humanities. Um, and one of the best things that I can do as a historian is just trying to help somebody see the world through somebody else's eyes. Um, and so, uh, you know, I talked about my lens, but if I, if I think about the lenses of the people that I've, that I've worked with who shaped this book so much for me, um, you know, uh, Trevor Getz, who wrote, wrote the, that uh, graphic novel, Abina and the Important Men, mm -hmm. um, you know, he talks about this question of authenticity and, mm -hmm. and hoping that, that what he had, with what he had written and, and the, with the illustrations that Liz Clark made that, um, that Abina would see herself and recognize herself mm. um, in, in that book and in that story. And I think that's my hope as well. Um, and so I think of, I think of the Senegalese that I rub shoulders with at various times in you know, the, the three years that I've spent in Senegal um, I think about the military officers that I worked with when I was the military attache there mm. um, and kind of their hopes for, for peace in the region and what, what, what they would like to see. Um, I would hope that um, they would feel like I treated them fairly and the Senegalese state fairly. Um, but I would also, of course, hope that uh, Kazem also feel the same way. Um, and so I would hope that uh, the, the, the Casamalse family, the host family that I stayed with, um, both in Dakar and in Ziegenshore, um, and uh, Andre Baji, who was my uh, interpreter, um, and uh, Mama Bea, who was the one who took me in, who was the, the matriarch of oh. the family. That's how I got to know Andre uh, mm. uh, and, and, uh, and Prince, his, his cousin, um, and uh, Mama Bea has passed away now, but her, her name mm. is Beatrice uh, Baji. And, um, you know, I, I would hope that they would recognize themselves as well, um, that uh, they, they would read this book, see this book and feel like, okay, um, yeah, maybe there's a few things Mark doesn't get because he's a Westerner. He's a, you know, West, <laughs> a Western researcher. But by and large, he did a pretty good job of, of trying to tell our story, and uh, we'll give him credit for that. And so um, I kind of hope that uh, both sides in this would be able to read it and say, yeah, he, he, he did all right in, in telling our story. Um, he, he, uh, um, he, he, he presented us in a way that uh, gives us dignity and, mm -hmm. and honor. Um, and so, you know, there's the other thought that I have that is like, well, I, you know, as a historian, I'm also supposed to be critical. 
And so, you know, th- th- there's no cheerleading for Senegal and there's no cheerleading for Casamals, really. Mm. Um, but I'm sure that there are, you know, a few things that I got wrong. And I'm sure that there are a few things that seem quite biased or that some, you know, some people um, might feel like w- was unfair in one way or another. Um, and so I've also thought, well, if both sides are pissed off at me, then that that, that might be <laughs> that might be a good a good sign too. Um, and I, I think they have a, a job, then they can write the next book. You know, that that's right. That's right. Build off from but, there. Uh, yeah, but yeah, no, that's what I hope for. I think I think it's empathy and it's understanding and it's authenticity. I think those are those are the big words that I'm after. Okay. Yeah, and it's uh, at least for me as a as a Senegalese Wolof Islam <laughs> is Muslims um, Wolof Senegalese. It's um, sensitivity, you know, to because I, I I hear how we talk about others, <laughs> like uh, you know other you know whether it's the the tukuler, the pul, the you know the jola. Mm-hmm. So I think it's at least for the next generation to have that sensitivity. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. break that cycle of mm-hmm. because I think the one thing I kept rewriting all over your book was unity compliment like it was just like we should be complimentary, you know, and not fighting one another or um continuing just just harmful greed just legacies that um so hopefully for the Senegalese people and, you know, since the Kazamase to see each other as brothers and sisters, I think yeah. it was unity, unity, unity. Um, so that's the one thing I know that I took away and um, sensitivity, good. unity and sensitivity. <laughs> good. So, good. I'm happy with that. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and to return the question to you, how do you walk away from this book? Um, I'm an advocate for mental health. So, um, in a in a way, without pressuring you <laughs> to say, uh-huh. um, you know, are you writing another book? But like, you know, what are your next steps? Um, how has this yeah. book or how has this project um, changed you or shifted your own sensibilities and curiosities? I do think that it's um, developed greater empathy in myself, which is also why I th- I think I want that for 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 other people. Um, when, when they read the book, um, you know, I've, uh, I've experienced a certain amount of, uh, humility. Um, let let me tell you a quick story, um, that might kind of illustrate what I'm talking. Um, so I told you about my host family staying with Mama Bea and Andre mm-hmm. uh, and Prince and uh, and, and uh, Marie um, in in Dakar um, and um, so I think it's in the CCAP uh, de something anyway. Um, staying with this family and uh, this is on one of my research trips there and. Um, you know, as, as a Westerner, um, um, I often am approached on the streets of Dakar by, uh, beggars and others, like either trying to hustle me for money or or, or just asking for money or whatever. And, um, I remember this one week where I was complaining to a fellow researcher about how this is, 
this is kind of reflective of my my white male privilege, right? Mm -hmm. That that I was I was tired of being viewed as an ATM. That uh, mm -hmm. you know, I was tired of all of these people on the streets of Dakar coming up to me with their handouts, uh, looking for me to to help them. Yeah. So so anyway, I was just. Uh, I had complained to uh, some of my fellow researchers uh, one week uh, while I was doing research in Dakar about all these people coming up to me with their handout and asking for money. And, um, and so yeah, I don't know if you believe in, in fate or God or whatever, but I feel like uh, when I said this, God said, hold my beer. Um, I'm going to humble this guy. And so um, I went to a <laughs> soccer match. Uh, it was a World Cup qualifier between Senegal and Liberia in uh, the Dakar International mm. Stadium. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, at this game, I had my uh, pocket picked. Um, my wallet was stolen and my mm. uh, cell phone. Fortunately, I had downloaded all of the research that I had done, all the, 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 the images of documents that I was doing for research. I downloaded that on my laptop earlier that day. Um, anyway, um, I woke up that next morning um, without any wallet, without any money, without mm. any uh, you know debit cards, credit cards of, of any kind. Um, fortunately I'd left my passport at, at, at mama Bea's. So I still had that, mm. but that's all I had. Um, and so mama Bea, uh, came into my, my room, uh, you know, after I woke up that morning and she said, Mark, I'm so sorry about what happened to you. You know, it makes me ashamed. It makes me upset. Um, as a, as a Senegalese that, that you, you were subjected to this. Um, but I happen to be the treasurer for our local neighborhood women's assistance association. And, um, I could provide you with a loan if you need it. Um, you know, until you can get back on your feet and, and get your, your, your financial life, you know, straightened out again. And, you know what, Fatima? I wanted to say no so bad. <laughs> I did. I wanted to say no because, you know, here I am. Here I was complaining earlier that week uh, about being viewed mm -hmm. as a money machine. And here I am. I'm at the, the mercy of a Senegalese widow who is offering mm. me the resources of her community to help me mm -hmm. in spite of, and you know, I didn't, I didn't say any of this to mama Bea, but in, in spite of the arrogance mm -hmm. that I was showing earlier that week. Um, and so, but I'm thinking, no, I'm a self-made American man. Like I did, you know, I, I help. <laughs> why would I accept mama Bea's help? Um, <laughs> but I had no choice. I, I had nothing. I, I didn't even mm -hmm. have like, you know, a few safe, to go to the, the, the kiosk <laughs> on the corner and buy myself a bottle of clean water. Mm -hmm. Like I, I had nothing. Mm -hmm. So I had to say, yes, mama Bea, please, please. If you don't mind, I, I will mm -hmm. accept this, this loan from the, the, the neighborhood women's assistance association. 
um, and I will repay you back once I get everything straightened out. And so that was, that was the humbling for me. And that was, um, that was also, you know, again, thinking about kind of the, the official diplomatic functions that I was going to all the time in uniform, um, and all that Mm -hmm. kind of the, the, the society that I was running in, you know, when I was a diplomat there and then to be, um, in this, this middle-class Senegalese family, um, and be, be mm. at the mercy again of this Senegalese widow and with the resources of that community. Um, again, it was humbling. And, um, it, I, I think it taught me more about those lenses again, and it taught me more about empathy and why, um, I need empathy too, just, just like everybody else, uh, in, in the world. And so, um, I, I guess from a mental health uh, point of view, um, yeah, I, I'm glad that you were <laughs> you were highlighting unity and you were highlighting community and how we need each other, um, and 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 uh, to highlight uh, more of our of our common humanity and less of our differences. Um, yeah, if if people get nothing more than that from this book, I'll be very happy. Well, that was that was a beautiful story. Thank you. For, well, I'm sorry that happened to you. First of all, um, unfortunately, yeah, it's uh, that's that's a common story. I mean, the number of people who got pickpocketed, my dad. Like, I remember that one. That one was on live TV. Actually, he was pickpocketed in a mosque, um, <laughs> out of all places. Uh, but you know. Um, I think at the end of the day, community, that's what helps us go through hardships. That's what helps us um, overcome challenges, community and unity. And that's definitely my takeaway from this book. So thank you very much. Um, Thank you once again for making the time to have this conversation. And we look forward to having you back on. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, getting to know you and and speak with you uh, a little bit. And I wish you all the best um, with the rest of of your program there at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs)